Hi, welcome. It's Jackie. And today's podcast, I'm talking with author and professor Kristen Dumez about her book, Jesus and John Wayne. If you've been perplexed, like I have, about how and why our conservative evangelical church leaders have been silent, I mean radio silent, about Donald Trump's sexual exploitation or his leadership style, which is one of like bullying, fear, and intimidation, if you've been perplexed, like how can that be? Well, this podcast is for you. I guarantee you, you will walk away saying, oh, I get it. You may not like what you get but at least you will understand it. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Like I said, today we're talking to Kristen Dumez, and she holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and she's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University up in Michigan. And her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. And she's authored two books. Uh, The first one was A New Gospel for Women, and we did an interview with her on that book. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that podcast because it it talks about um, the history of sexual purity and of the sexual purity movement. And then she's written the book that we're going to be discussing today, Jesus and John Wayne. She has written for the Washington Post, Religious News Service, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and Religion and Politics. She's been interviewed on NPR, CTV, CBC, and CNN, and the New York Times, The Economist, and The Christian Post, PBC, NewsHour, and The AP, among many other outlets. If you just Google her name or put in the title of her book, you're going to see she's everywhere right now because her book is so pertinent to this day. Now, if you find this podcast helpful, and and you want to dig deeper into this discussion about Jesus and John Wayne, I'd like to invite you to join our book discussion that I'll be hosting on September 29th. You can go to my website, www.themarcellaproject, to get further information and register. But I will tell you, there's only more five more slots left, so, like, be sure to get on it. And also, please consider, you know, who needs to hear this? Pass this on. As well as I would really appreciate it if you'd go over to Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're using and subscribe to Jackie Always Unplugged. I'd really appreciate that. So thanks for taking time to be with us today. I think you're going to find this well worth it. So welcome, Kristen. I know that you're in the middle of starting school back, and you have kids that you're managing, and this conversation around your book is taking off. So I know you're really busy, so I want to thank you for being with us this morning. Oh, I'm happy to be with you. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard this. Um, Many people I've talked to anyway think that the inception of your book uh, was birthed from the 2016 election. So I would love for you to share with our listeners when, when you started noodling on these concepts that you ended, on, uh, ended up writing on and, and why you wrote the book in the first place? Yeah, this book actually started, at least the research for this book started more than 15 years ago. I was a new professor at Calvin and I was teaching a course in American history. This was in 2005 or 2006. And I just had a little unit on Teddy Roosevelt. And I thought it was a great way to show students um, how ideas about masculinity and femininity, how ideas about gender were part of a broader uh, American history. And so with Teddy Roosevelt, I showed how aggressive foreign policy and ideas about race and nation were intertwined with um, uh, masculinity and religion. After that class period where I lectured on the topic, 
I had a couple of male students come up to me and say, Professor DeMay, there's this book that you really need to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're familiar with that book, it was it was a best-selling book in the early 2000s. It sold more than 4 million copies. Every Christian guy was reading it in a small group and in the dorm Bible studies. And um, John Eldridge starts the book out with a quote of, um, from Teddy Roosevelt and and goes on to like paint this very kind of militaristic, militant model of Christian manhood. Uh, God is a warrior God, and men are made in his image, and every man has a battle to fight. So <laughs> I was intrigued, and this was right at the time, 2006, uh, where um, survey data was coming out showing how white evangelicals were disproportionately supportive of the Iraq War, of preemptive war generally. They were condoning the use of torture, uh, you know, really supportive of aggressive foreign policy. And I started asking myself, how does evangelical gender ideology go hand in hand with what I'm seeing on the global stage? So I started researching, spent over a year with a research assistant who himself was in the military at the time. And um, what I was finding was incredibly disturbing. And I I wasn't really sure what to do with it, to be honest. I was involved in other projects. I needed to finish my first book. Um, but one of the reasons that I set the, the research aside for a time, I always intended to come back to it, was I just wasn't sure how mainstream this all was. And as a person of faith myself, I, I, I didn't really want to shine this bright light on what seemed to me maybe the darkest underbelly of American Christianity, on this embrace of militarism, misogyny, and and so I, I did set it a time, <laughs> aside for a time. Uh, in 2016, uh, with it was really around the Axis Hollywood tape. Uh, when, when those came out and we saw white evangelicals continue to support Donald Trump, suddenly things just clicked into place. And I, I dusted off the old research, and that's when I, when I picked the project up again. I had no idea 15 years ago that Donald Trump was going to be the culmination of this project that I had um, be- begun to investigate so so many years ago. And I think this um, is so important important for listeners to understand is that this wasn't a book you had uh, where you went after Donald Trump. This was some this was a concept about hyper uh, militant hyper masculinity that you were going after 15 years ago you started seeing it and it and it just accumulated accumulated however you say that with Donald Trump being elected. And this is a, a let me go to a quote you have in your book because it's really in the very beginning and it lays down the premise and it says electing Trump was not an aberration nor a pragmatic choice, but it was the culmination that's the word I want culmination of this long evangelical embrace of militant masculinity, an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. And that's really what you were going after, not necessarily a particular um, political party or even a person, but just this person shows. And I loved Uh it. I thought this was very helpful for someone who studies gender also. Um, I think the book's more about gender, but people have a misnomer. Yeah. So then you take us back to this historical journey because you're a historian and you start with how did this um, hyper-masculinity, militant masculinity get developed? And of course, it didn't start just in the 1800s, but that's kind of where you start your research and you take us from that journey all the way up till now. So help our listeners because many of them don't understand what was this transition that was happening in America um, in relation to masculinity, particularly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that caused men to experience anxiety, insecurity about what it meant to be a man? And then how did Christian men go about fixing their masculinity problem at that time? Yeah, uh, so uh, I think one of the most important things that history can do uh, as part of this conversation about you know religion and gender is to show that things have not always been the way they are now. And, and that's just that's hugely important, I think, especially for Christians who tend to think of gender as a kind of static concept. It's God-ordained. It's, you know, um, handed down, um, you know, through the scriptures, from God, from creation, through all those times. Uh, when, when we look to history, we can see so much change over time. And my book really focuses on the last 75 years or so of American history, but you're right. I do glance back into the 19th century just to establish this, you know, things have not always been the way they right. seem to be now. 
So in the 19th century, you had a number of different things going on uh, in terms of American masculinity. Uh, earlier in the century, you had a, really the most common ideal of Christian manhood was one of self-restraint, a kind of gentlemanly uh, a Christian manhood. And that made sense in, um, in, in, in terms of what else was going on in American culture. Um, it was an era of kind of entrepreneurial capitalism where um, you know, men were starting businesses and, and restraint made a lot of sense. You save your money and, and, and uh, you know, you can reinvest in your business. And, and uh, so the point is that the ideas of manhood have always been linked to kind of broader trends and especially to, to work, to, to, um, to labor. Uh, into economic systems, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then um, and then the economy shifts, um, and and the nature of men's work increasingly starts to shift. You have much um, fewer men who are working with their hands. They're um, especially middle class men. They're they're not subsistence farmers. They're they're maybe punching the clock. Maybe they're middle management, and and so for for many men, this starts to be like you know what is masculinity when the work that we do has changed. And um, by the late 19th century, you see a lot of um, people looking to kind of the working class, the more rugged vision of masculinity. Um, in fact, masculinity as a word kind of represents this as opposed to the older, more genteel manhood. And um, more of an embrace of, of the rough and tough um, masculinity, which in the late 19th century coincides with ideas of, of, um, of race. That um, this idea that white men, white American men, need to kind of preserve American strength, um, but they don't seem all that rugged and strong anymore. So how can they kind of toughen themselves up so that they can lead the nation? It's a very interesting moment. Uh, by the early 20th century, what you see then is an embrace of rugged masculinity among American men generally, but that creates a kind of problem for Christians. Because if you look to the Bible, you have the fruits of the spirit, you have mm-hmm. the Beatitudes, you have love your enemies. So they need to kind of rethink Christianity in a way that um, that uh, kind of dovetails with this embrace of a rugged Christian manhood. And they do that through embracing muscular Christianity, really celebrating masculine toughness as the way that God made men to be. And, and that's... Um, um, linked up with ideas of the American nation, too, for white Christian men, that they have a special task of kind of defending the family and defending the nation um, against all, all of external and internal threats. Now, there's a lot of things that kind of change in the early 20th century with, you know, the First World War, and you've got liberal and conservative Protestants embracing this muscular Christianity. Things continue to shift, but you can definitely hear echoes of this earlier muscular Christianity when we see a resurgence of this in contemporary evangelicalism or in the, in the post-World War II era. Well, and you, you kind of touch upon it a little bit, but one of the things about bringing back this muscular masculinity was intersecting um, men with uh, militant behavior, which you mentioned even, and I, you don't talk a ton about race in your book, although you tap it the whole way through, but how the yeah. South had this, the Southern masculinity was a one in particular in the beginning of protecting its land, protecting its dependence, protecting the slave, the institution of slavery, right? And so you tie this whole idea of uh, hyper-masculinity with militant behavior as an, like an identity marker of Christian evangelical. So can you tell us yeah. a little bit about how that tied together? How did we get, if you will, in bed with the military? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So the, in the 19th century, I, I kind of gave the north, northern version of just a minute ago of this history of, of uh, Christian manhood. Uh, but in the South, you have a culture of honor that develops within evangelical communities um, that really elevates white uh, uh, patriarchy and, um, and condones violence for the sake of, of maintaining order. Um, and and the order, meaning discipline of women and children, you know, the protection of women and children, but also very much of enslaved people. Um, and so by the early 20th century, that kind of combines with this muscular Christianity and, and unites Christian men in the North and the South around this idea that, you know, it is man's God-given duty to, in, to protect his family, to protect his nation, and um, that violence might be necessary 
in order to achieve those ends. Then, if we if we jump ahead uh, to the 1940s, 1950s, uh, with the dawn of the Cold War, this idea of protecting family and nation really comes back with a vengeance. Uh, because you have this communist threat and evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, do a lot to kind of draw attention and to uh, raise awareness about this, this, this dire threat facing the American nation and Christianity. And they see communists as anti-God and anti-family and uh, as this it, just incredible threat. And they see that they have a particular role to play as Orthodox Christians as this faithful remnant in American culture to shore up American strength uh, so that we can withstand the communist threat. And and they are very explicit about how to do so. It takes military might uh, and it takes strong men. And um, especially by the 1960s, there's this growing fear that because of feminism and a little bit because of the civil rights mm-hmm. movement, the power of white Christian men and the power of American men generally is being threatened, that men are being emasculated. And again, as conservative evangelicals who are holding to a patriarchal theology, they believe that they have been given the special, special mission to um, strengthen American manhood and, and defend the nation through military power in order to protect God and country. And the two are are inseparable. So that leads me to ask the question, because I think this ties in beautifully with why is John Wayne in the title of your book, especially since he wasn't an evangelical conservative Christian? No, he was not. So how did he get there? (laughs) Exactly. So when I started reading books like Eldridge's Wild at Heart and then dozens and dozens of other books on Christian masculinity, I was was very surprised originally by... uh, how little the Bible actually played in, in, in constructions of, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian man? And instead, how much authors turned to Hollywood heroes, um, to mythical warriors, to American soldiers, to um, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, and John Wayne just kept popping up as, you know, we all know that John Wayne is the icon of American manhood, the model of Christian masculinity. And I thought, you know, really? And, and that's when I came to see that uh, culture played a, a, a very significant role in shaping Christian ideals of heroic masculinity. Um, and, and it did so because if you look to the scriptures, you'll get a lot of messages, again, that are going to be undercutting this militant masculinity. You're going to see Jesus telling followers to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies, Um, you know, the the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-restraint. None of these things really make for a militant Christian manhood. In fact, you know, within the gospel, Arguably, it's the opposite that comes through. It's the divestment of power that Christians are called to model themselves after, not grasping power, not using violence, you know, to to force um, beliefs or to, quote unquote, protect Christianity or Christ. And so what I what I came to see is that these cultural and often secular models of masculinity had um, had really influenced ideals of Christian manhood despite evangelicals' claims, again, to be Bible-believing Christians. And, um, and in fact, also, I, I came to see that popular culture, popular Christian writing, radio, television, um, had played a formative role in shaping evangelicals' ideas of manhood, but also, in turn, of Christianity itself. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I don't think our listeners understand the impact um of media and the fact that mm-hmm. you mentioned in your book that um, conservative evangelicals were masters at, if you will, marketing Christianity. Yeah. We, probably the Absolutely. first. Explain a little about that because uh, when you put it in your book, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I saw Veggie Tales. Oh my gosh, yes, DC Talk. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, I actually published <laughs> a lot of things. I'm like, I've been a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, that is, that is such a, a common reaction when people are reading this book, uh, evangelicals especially. Uh, surprisingly are some of my biggest fans um, because this is, I hear from so many who say, this is the story of my life. 
right? Because this is a, a, a study of popular evangelical culture. So it's not, uh, it's a little bit what's going on in the seminaries, a little bit, you know, certainly what's going on with prominent pastors, but also very much the everyday lives of ordinary evangelicals. And uh, in the 1940s, when evangelicals were kind of regrouping, um, forming the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, they were very explicit about wanting, they thought that they, their power had been diminished uh, after the kind of fundamentalist modernist controversies, the Scopes trial and so on. They hadn't at all disappeared, and uh, but they, they, they wanted to have a, a greater claim. Uh, they had wanted to have more influence because, you know, they thought that, that they, they could bring about righteousness and, and kind of this revival of America. Um, but to do that, they knew they needed to shore up their power and their influence. And one of the ways that they were very explicit about setting out to do was to uh, work through media, um, to work through um, magazines that would you know, have, have reached into the hundreds of thousands, uh, work through uh, radio, very important, important to them, and then over time also television, and also through Christian publishing. And this is when we see the rise of the um, um, Christian Booksellers Association, and we start to see in the post-war era Christian bookstores start popping up all over the country. And this changes Christian publishing Earlier, um, and here I'm drawing on the work of Daniel Silliman. Um, he's a writer at Christianity Today um, and a historian as well. And he's, he's done great work showing how um, this changes publishing itself because earlier in the century, a lot of Christian writing was distributed through denominations. And so it was, it was denominationally specific. It could be quite theologically specific. When we move to the post-World War II era and it's being distributed through Christian bookstores across the country, you don't want to get too theologically specific or you're going to offend somebody who's coming mm -hmm. from a different denomination. So instead, you focus on Christian living, how to be a Christian, how to be a Christian wife, how to be a Christian husband, how to raise your your, your kids. How to have a great a marriage. <laughs> how to have great sex. Yep, yes. You got it. And so that really changes the substance of, of Christianity in some ways. And certainly it's, it's, and it also brings a kind of unity across difference because you can walk into a Christian bookstore or, you know, back when we had Christian bookstores, so we're in a kind of different phase right now moving online. Um, but you could walk into a, a Christian bookstore in a rural town in Iowa, in a city in South Carolina, in Southern California, and you're going to see the same products on the shelves. Mm -hmm. People across the country and increasingly around the world are tuning into James Dobson's Focus on the Family Radio, right? And so you see this, this is the reach. And, and their pastors might be preaching in a certain way on a Sunday morning, but that in many cases is just a drop in the bucket. Um, and many American evangelicals are being spiritually and culturally and politically formed through this popular culture. Yeah. And I think what other people may not even be aware of, although we definitely saw it in Jen Hatmaker, is that when uh, it was, it was also a way of making sure that you stayed on party line. So in other words, yeah. there were certain things, ideas, identities, ideologies that uh, conservative evangelicals were promoting um, through media. And if you stepped outside those lines, um, you were shut down quickly. And we saw this with Jen Hatmaker when she was homosexually affirming gays, and then they just Lifeway took her off the shelf and no more publishing, right? So we see exactly. some policing done also through this medium. Very much so. So boundary maintenance, right? That if you cross this line and, and you can, and that's one of the things that I was charting in my book, uh, which was a fascinating project, you know, which lines can, you know, can you not cross and still stay within the fold? And how do you define what's within the fold? Uh, yeah, these, these uh, marketing Distribution systems are hugely important. Lifeway, Christian books, right? If, if you, in, in bookstores, if your book doesn't appear on those bookshelves, you know, you're going to have a hard time making a living in right. the in the evangelical subculture. And, um, and, and so those are in, incredibly important kind of um, boundary setting institutions. When a lot of scholars, you know, kind of throw up their hands, what is evangelicalism? It's so hard to define. And is it theological that, you know, who is an evangelical? What I say is, let's, let's look at evangelicalism as a consumer culture. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly these things start to make sense. Sure. Um, you sure. know, who's writing the books? Who's blurbing the books? Who's, 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 you know, keynoting who's, these big conferences? Right. Who's and going who to the conferences? Yeah. 
Yep. And you can be, you know, you can say some and write some very racist things as I trace in my book and still be embraced in this community and by these publishers and distribution networks. But you cross the line on gender and sexuality and you are out. Yeah, that's the big line right there. Right. So, so yeah. uh, you know, because you're, you're we're protecting patriarchal society. Right. And so yeah. if you cross the line, like there are some huge women that I've actually mentored that have huge ministries right now online and in the media and, uh, we kind of align ourselves theologically, but they've never spoken out about what, what women can do in leadership. And as long as they stay silent about that position, they're going to be fine. And if you watch Beth Moore, what's happened to her since the 2016 election, right? She's been fine because she's stayed within the parameters, particularly about what women can and can't do. And now she's pushing that line. She has walked the line and very well, might I add. And now she is pushing. She's using her collateral, if you will. She's got a lot of money in the bank when it comes to her credibility. And she's going, hey, this isn't working for me. And it's been interesting watching people who have been supposedly her you know, cheerleaders suddenly turn quickly on her because she's stepped outside that patriarchal boundary. Exactly, exactly. And social media has really changed that landscape in the last 10 years too. And Beth Moore is a perfect example of that, that now women can have a platform, maintain a platform outside of the kind of traditional um, uh, structures. Uh, you know, again, there's still book publishing and there's book sales and there's alienating your audience and, and you know, that women are acutely aware of. And again, Jen Hatmaker is, is a great example of what this looks like. Um, but social media does kind of change the playing field and women like Beth Moore have a lot of power and, and they're also more visible. I think that's another difference mm-hmm. that for a long time, you know, what women were doing in women's Bible studies, most. Uh, evangelical leaders were oblivious. Right, to. weren't seeing it. <laughs> exactly. But when Beth Moore has, you know, is, is pushing a million Twitter followers and is engaging them on Twitter on a daily basis, she's incredibly visible. She's, you know, profiled in the Atlantic. She's a, you know, a national figure. And suddenly, I think, uh, you know, the the power that women have had internally is um, is becoming visible. But yes, there are still very, very real constraints. And many, many women decide it's better um, to you know, pursue their ministry as they perceive it without crossing these lines so that they continue can continue to have that influence. Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a dilemma that many women are facing. It is a dilemma for sure. And things that I think our audience probably is unaware of. But let me move on a little bit. In your book, you talk about, you mentioned in the 40s getting organized. And then we see another way in which they get organized in the in the 60s and 70s with um, defending family values, a real pushback, if you will, from the sexual revolution and feminism and, and their belief in high patriarchy. And we have Dobson, you've mentioned him, LaHaye, Falwell, Gothard. And they organize, and, and their organization impacts policy and politics and even presidential elections, which you talk about in your book. There are some other things I want to get to here about how this impacts women. So what I want to say to you listeners out there is go buy the book. There's so much more here that we are not going to be able to cover that is is pertinent to how you have been trained to think and, and believe, and you need to dig in. And I want you to consider joining our book discussion that we're having on September 29th. We only have five more places left in that. We've almost sold out. So you want to jump over and at uh, www.themarcellaproject.com and get on that ASAP. And then if this podcast has been helpful for you, share it with a friend and go over to Apple or Spotify and subscribe. Um, I'm sure that... Um, this is something we want to, this conversation that Kristen is talking about, it's hot today and we want to get it out to everybody we can. So Kristen, you talk about, uh, whenever we talk about masculinity, we also have to talk about the, the flip side, which is femininity. And in your book, you do a great job. You give actually a lot of space uh, to talking about how women during this time frame. what were women doing in the conservative evangelical world while men were developing and evolving this militant hyper-masculinity. And we have multiple examples of women who actually were promoting this patriarchal authority, still do today, and, um, and conversely, what, what they called traditional womanhood. And you mentioned names, some that I've never heard, like 
Maribel Morgan. Is that how you say her first name? Maribel? Yeah. Maribel. Yeah, I never Maribel. heard of her. Um, Elizabeth <laughs> Elliott, I've heard of. I actually heard her at DTS um, in Chapel Speak. Uh-huh. And Phyllis Shafley, I've actually watched and read a lot about her. Beverly yeah. LaHaye, I read some of her stuff growing when I became a Christian. And and these women all kind of taught the same message, which is clean up, paint up, and fix up, if you will, before your hubby, yeah. hubby comes home. And I heard that. I, I bet you have too. I want to read from your book something um, that you kind of summarize about what Beverly LaHaye taught, her and her husband. It says, God's design designed man to be the aggressor, provider, and leader of his family. How many of us out there have heard this? They, right? These roles were directly tied to a man's sex drive. This is fascinating to me. These roles, mm-hmm. aggressor, provider, and leader, are directly tied to a man's sex drive. You couldn't have a man's aggressive leadership without his aggressive sex drive, and women who resented the latter had better come to terms with this fact. In satisfying their husbands sexually, wives played a critical role in propping up men's ego, which in turn bolstered them for leadership. If a husband lacked confidence, his wife should, quote-unquote, make aggressive love to him, dress provocatively, and use her feminine charm to seduce him, to help him bounce back. A woman's failure in the bedroom the LaHaye's made clear, had consequences. Few men accept bedroom failure without being carnal, nasty, and insulting. In other words, if a man didn't enjoy a wife's lovemaking, he would find ways to make his disapproval known. This was simply the way things worked. It sounds a lot like the body being marketed as a commodity and self. We're asking women to self-objectify, if not. I'll even use the word prostitute themselves. Um, So I want to ask you a question that I have not, I've done a little research on this, but I've never fully gotten my hands around it. I don't know that you can have, you have it fully understood either, but I just wondered, Mm -hmm. could you tell me your insight or your thoughts about why do women support and promote and even police this kind of ideology? Yeah. Oh, tough question. And Historically, when I looked at, you know, the writings of Maribel Morgan or Elizabeth Elliot, I, I saw a couple of things going on, and Phyllis Schlafly as well, although she was Catholic, we'll, we'll consider her an honorary evangelical for our purposes because she was so influential uh, within evangelical circles. But um, uh, one, one, one thing that I understood was that, you know, the feminist movement was very disruptive um, by the 1970s. And many evangelical women, too, like, like Betty Friedan and like other feminists, were, were deeply unhappy with, in their lives. Um, they, 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 um, they felt circumscribed. They, they were, were uh, quite miserable. Um, but the feminist revolution didn't seem like a great solution to many women who had already kind of invested in home and family. They didn't have much of an education. They had no career. They had maybe several children still at home. And so this idea of, you know, go out and seize the world and, you know, compete with men in the marketplace, that that just was not realistic. Um, And so people like Maribel Morgan came along and Beverly LaHaye and and would say, yes, you know, your lives are are, um, looking pretty grim right now. Here's a different path. To liberation. It's not liberation like the, the secular feminist movement, but if you follow our rules, if you are lovely and, and absolutely submissive and sweet and feminine, and if you you make yourself meet all of your husband's needs, he is going to treat you better. <laughs> he, things are going to be more peaceful on the home front. Uh, he's going to give you more money to spend. Mm. Um, you know, so. So part of it was, you know, kind of working with the, the hand you were dealt. And for many women, kind of the promises of, of feminist liberation just were not feasible. And this was a, a more acceptable, more manageable kind of path to improving their their condition. Um, but I will also say that, and this is where somebody like Elizabeth Elliott comes in, but really all of the women are also arguing this is obedient Christianity, right? This is the way to be a faithful Christian wife. Um, This is the way to be a faithful Christian, period. And many women believed that. They were taught that from pulpits. They were taught that in women's Bible studies. And so it became very difficult for women to separate out, you know, kind of um, uh, their own needs or or, um, aspirations from what was being handed to them as gospel truth. 
and, and again, many women genuinely believe that this is the way to be an obedient, uh, obedient woman. This is a way to love God. And, um, and, and you see that really generation after generation. There's also a question of, of power that, and there many, some women, many, it's hard to say you know, how many were genuinely happy in this role. Maybe they had a lovely Christian husband who respected them um, and, and things worked well for them. And so for them, there was no problem here. They loved their role as a wife, as a mom or, or whatever. Um, so there's a huge variety of, of women's experiences. But I think uh, the most troubling is when it goes wrong. Um, and in one of the themes I've traced through this book up to the present is uh, incidences of abuse of power and sexual abuse in particular in evangelical families, organizations, and institutions. And that's when you can see really the toxic effects of this ideology of masculinity and femininity. And, um, and, and there are some harrowing stories here and, and far more than, than you might expect. Um, and, and so that's, that's absolutely a theme of this book as well. Which is perfect, leads me right into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is exactly that. And, you know, I've mentioned before, I didn't grow up as a, a Christian, and I came to faith in my 20s and immediately pretty much moved to Dallas, you know, to Dallas to attend Dallas Theological Seminary. And I was pretty much clueless about this whole, if you will, conservative evangelical world in which I was now swimming in. And I, I would say it took me um, quite a bit of time before I actually woke up and realized that I was living in this conservative culture, probably in the 2000s, really, it took me a while, even though I came in the 1990s to Dallas, you know, mm-hmm. really, it wasn't until the early 2000s that I, <laughs> like, oh, what's happening around me, and um, and and I, I feel like I woke up right in the middle of this uh, conservative evangelical male leadership, um, like, uh, testosterone on steroids. Yeah. I, I remember specifically being at a Starbucks in Capel, Texas, where I lived, and I won't name the pastor, but he, he came in with his, his dudes and, you know, he came in swaggering. You would have thought he was on like a musician, a famous movie star, a, a, you know, an athlete, but they just would come swaggering into Starbucks and they all had this very cool hip look. And I I know all of you know what I'm talking about. And, um, and I, and I listened to people in my church talk about John Eldridge, like everybody was reading Wild at Heart as if it was the second coming. And, and yeah. I, you know, I would have people tell me what they were reading, and I was thinking, mm, I don't know, you know. And then, and then there was Robert Lewis. Our, our men's Bible study yeah. was going to do Robert Lewis's study on men's fraternity, which was really, yeah. really popular. And in my church, they wanted my opinion on, on the content. What did I, how did I see that as far as, you know, it, it lining up with biblical manhood or womanhood? And so, and I was the teaching pastor on staff there for women. And so I went and reviewed it with the male pastor. And, um, you know, one of the four tenets of identifying masculinity was that he, that men are warriors. And I remember thinking, yeah. well, and I said it out loud, well, wait a minute, women are warriors too. And I gave many examples and, and that didn't go over well. And then during that time, there was this rising star, this young pastor, uh, Mark Driscoll, who ended up founding yeah. Acts 29, which many of my listeners attend those churches um, mm-hmm. that are part of Acts 29, don't even know what Acts 29 is. But in my opinion, uh, Driscoll is iconic of this militant, uh-huh. hyper-masculine dude on display. And he was really yeah. revered. Like, he was held up as the example to go after. And his leadership style was one of fear and intimidation and bullying. And I'd love to yeah. say that he, you know, he's fallen now. He was removed, although I think he's back in the pulpit. He's but he was, he was removed, right? He was removed for that behavior. Yeah. Um, but, but he wasn't abnormal. We could look at Mahaney, yeah. Patrick, MacArthur, McDonald, Hybels. All of them yeah. led underneath that kind of leadership style, fear, intimidation, um, yeah. for my listeners out there, I want to read a section that you put in your book uh, about Mark Driscoll's words, because I, a lot of people on the West Coast may be really familiar with him. I think um, if you were in the Acts 29 group, you'd be familiar with him, but not everybody is. So let me just read a few of them um, from your book. He says, I love to fight. It's good to fight. Fighting is what we used to do when we weren't all pussified. Before America became a pussified nation, in the vein, he offered a scathing critique of the early itinerary of the evangelical men's movement of the pussified James Dobson knockoff crying promise keeper worship, where men hugged and cried. And he says, like damn junior high girls watching Dawson's Creek, real men should steer clear. Mark Driscoll's The Problem 
For Mark Driscoll, the problem went all the way back to biblical Abraham, a man who plunged humanity headlong into hell feminism, quote-unquote, by listening to his wife, quote, who thought Satan was a good theologian. Failing to exercise his delegated authority as king of the planet, Abraham was cursed, and every man since has been pussyfied. The result was a nation of men raised by bitter, penis-envying, burned feminist single moms who make sure that Johnny grows up to be a very nice woman who sits down to pee. Women serve certain purposes and not others, and in more than one infamous, Ms. Driscoll talked about God creating women to serve as penis homes for lonely penises. And when a woman posted on the church's discussion board, um, his response was swift. I don't answer to women, so your question will be ignored. So, yeah, that's Mark Driscoll. The rise of the swaggering badass was not a problem for the Christian evangelical world. Can you explain why that was and still is? And how did that ideology make a way for us to be totally fine with Trump's leadership style? Yeah. Oh, so, so this was some of the material I was coming across early on in this project, again, 15 years ago, and I thought, what do I do with this? What, how do we even make sense of this? It was so revolting and so puzzling because, as you said, Driscoll was revered, uh, and he was looked to as the model of Christian leadership by an entire generation of pastors and by young evangelical men. And... Um, and what I came to see was this ideology of kind of warrior masculinity that, that I mean, you mentioned Robert Lewis, it, it just, it, it pervades evangelical discussions of gender. Uh, and it has now for, for at least a generation, um, stretching back further, that this justifies a lot of very crass behavior because they emphasize testosterone so much, and God filled men with testosterone, and it makes them dangerous. It makes them reckless. But that's what is needed to fight the battles that man has to fight. And and these are kind of um, uh, metaphorical battles, but they're also the culture wars battles at home, and they are very real wars abroad, um, especially after 9-11. Again, this, this, this comes back very strongly. Um, so then there are side effects to this testosterone-driven masculinity, but that's okay because that's the way God made things. And, and so this, this crassness, even misogyny, um, this, uh, you know, not bowing to co- political correctness whatsoever uh, becomes a marker of true Christian masculinity. Now, I'll add that not all men model themselves after yes. this. Uh, many wives simply wouldn't put up with it. Some men try, and then they, again, that doesn't go over so well at home, you know. Um, but and many men also see that this just isn't them, you know. They 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 would. <laughs> I just just got a letter from somebody who said, you know, this was my life, and frankly, I would have enjoyed going to an art museum with guys from Bible study mm. instead of going out on a you know wilderness warrior weekend kind of thing and and try to climb mountains and things like that or shoot things. Um, but, uh, this, this really, so, so not all men, this, this, this wasn't how God made them. In, in fact, let me just interject there. I would even add that this kind of teaching can be very dangerous for men as well yeah. as women, right? If you exactly. don't fit this mold, you too are out, you're emasculated. Exactly. And so this is a damaging message for men also. Very much, very much. And so men got, and this is something I write about in the book, got the message that if they couldn't live up to this, they were either second-class men, they were emasculated, or second-class Christians or both. Many men ended up walking away from the faith altogether because mm. it just didn't, they couldn't live into this. Um, but there's another another um, kind of um, pattern that I also observed, and that is many men who couldn't live up to this ideal then deferred to men who did, mm. um, with a kind of awe and a kind of sense of those are the alpha males and they are the ones who deserve to lead. Yep. Somebody like Mark Driscoll, somebody like Donald Trump. Yep. Perfect. Which, okay, we've only got a few more minutes and I want to tap upon um, sexual abuse and sexual exploitation because in the election of 2016, leading up to that, we heard Trump's comments about grabbing women's pussies on the Access Hollywood tapes and, and I sat back and waited to, to hear my male church leaders say something about that. I didn't even care if they still voted for him. I still wanted them to say that right there 
that's not okay. Like I needed them right. to stick up for me and for the rest of us women who love Jesus and have served in their churches so faithfully. And it was radio silent. And I yeah. have been perplexed about that since 2016. It's actually caused my faith to really go through some really tough spa- stages. And um, yeah. it wasn't until I read your book that I was like, oh, I get it. Because I could not figure out why this this people group that actually proclaims to be um, family values and moral purity, somehow we're just yeah. not saying anything about Trump's sexual exploitation and misogyny. And then yeah. I read in your book, and of course I knew this, but I hadn't put it together. Um, you read this, you have this section in your book on sexual abuse and exploitation by church leaders, which of course is why we had the church to movement, right? Ted Haggard, mm-hmm. Joe White, which is the president of Kennecott, which I know so many people down here in Dallas whose kids went there, they served there. Bill Gothard, Doug Phillips, the, Tug- the Duggar family, Bill Hybels, Paige Patterson, just to name a few, because I don't know yeah. that our listeners have ever actually seen it in a list. They'd be shocked. Yeah. And you say in your book, history um, makes plain that evangelicals' tendency to dismiss and deny cases of sexual misconduct and abuse, too, was nothing new. Rather, these tendencies appeared to be uh, endemic. How do you say that? Yeah, endemic. Endemic of the movement itself. So how does this truth help us make sense of conservative evangelical support of Trump and specifically um, our silence toward his infidelity, his sexual abuse, and sexual exploitation of women. Yeah. So again, if God has filled men with testosterone, um, and He does that to make them strong, a side effect is they they may be reckless, but this is this is what it takes. This is the kind of strong masculine leadership that we need. A strong man, um, and and so. When it comes to sexuality, again, that there's an aggressive sex drive that is a, a part of God-given masculinity, and it is on women then to protect purity. It is on women not to tempt men. It is on wives to fulfill their husband's every sexual need so that he does not go outside of heterosexual mar- marriage to meet his needs, which, again, are God-given sexual needs. Right. Uh, and so there is just so much of a, the pattern is set that when a man engages in sexual misconduct, uh, he, he is very quickly excused or forgiven uh, because boys will be boys. And, you know, this is, this is just how God made men. And instead, women bear the blame. And, and any, any woman, I mean, even young girls who are, who are raped by abusive pastors, fathers, end up getting blamed for quote unquote seducing these men. It's, yep. it's, it's incredibly disturbing. Wives get blamed for their own abuse or wives get blamed for not meeting with their, um, not meeting their husband's needs so that he had to go outside of marriage. And that's what we see in the Ted Haggard case where, I mean, it's, it's the same sex relationship and yet they still find a woman to blame. And that right. woman is his wife who clearly was not meeting his, his uh, sexual needs sufficiently. And so you have this repeated patterns of blaming women and excusing men. And, and again, in the days after the Access Hollywood um, tape release, I, like you, was watching. And there were a couple of voices mm-hmm. who spoke out very briefly. And then within a week or two had fallen back in line and were back to supporting Trump and excusing that behavior. And that's when this all clicked for me. And I thought we have seen this before. We should not be surprised. We have to understand what family values have always meant and that this aggressive, militant masculinity has always been at the heart of quote-unquote family values evangelicalism. And once you understand that, this isn't kind of hypocrisy that we're seeing. This isn't shocking. This is absolutely consistent with what we've seen for more than half a century. Yep. And that was the connection point for me. I was like, I literally read your book and at the end I went, oh, I may not like it, but I now can make sense of it and therefore can yeah. live with it better, right? And and yeah. we, we didn't even have time. We don't have time to talk of even about when sexual abuse and sexual exploitation happens in the church. And you lay yeah. out this a little bit in your book. We actually have a circling of the wagons. So we have, yeah. you know, we have a patriarchal leadership and we have an adoration toward that one alpha male that's leading, if you will, to the point yeah. where we will ignore even abuses that he's doing. I mean, Bill Hybels is a classic, right? And even when it came out that he has violated women for decades, 
Um, I, I have male pastors who I'm friends with that just can't come to terms with that because he's done so much good and he was so revered. And, and, and there was this amazing protection that we have in place yeah. to keep in place this patriarchal leadership, to keep in place this militant hyper-masculinity. And when you understand some of these concepts, it's not a far reach that we went and elected that we're not shocked by Trump. It totally no. makes sense, right? It and and for me, sense. Trump isn't about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's about Trump and the fact that we... Yeah. I could not make sense of how my faith tradition was not saying anything about these things. And your book does a great job of answering that. I think your book is uh, for such a time as this. And so let me ask this question. How can our listeners connect with you and your work? How do they find you? Sure. I have a website where I put up most of my writings. Um, that's kristendumay.com. Dumay is actually D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. And I am also on Facebook, very active. I have an author page, Kristen Kovas Dumay, um, and you can find me there. And it's a great community. And I'm on Twitter and also pretty active there. Uh, and that's at KK Dumay. Um, so at KKDUMEZ. Perfect. And for those of you out there listening, um, again, we are going to be hosting a book discussion on, uh, on uh, Kristen's book, Jesus and John Wayne, on September 29th. Almost full, so go over to www.themarcellaproject.com, register ASAP. And again, if you've found this discussion helpful, pass it to a friend and be sure to subscribe. Thank you, Kristen. I appreciate you so much. Keep going. Keep rowing. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And for those of you listening, go buy Kristen's new book, Jesus and John Wayne. Join our book discussion on September 29th. The content of this book is so pertinent to us today. I just had one woman text me earlier and say that she's halfway through the book already. She's joined our book discussion. She said, I'm halfway through, and I find it fascinating and frustrating all at the same time. You might also feel that way, but I can assure you it will help you make sense of what's happening around you in your evangelical circles. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.